chapter 5, where um, <coughs> we see the way Christian spirituality is designed uh, to impact marriage. Excuse me. <coughs> so I found uh, several, several animal species mate for life. And one of them is the swan. Swans mate for life, generally. And um, that's biology, and it's how they're wired. Uh, most animals actually don't, but some species of animals do. And God tells humans to. Not that we're animals, but that as his image bearers, we are to establish covenants that we keep, like our creator, who keeps his covenants. One of those covenants is the covenant of marriage, and so we're going to enjoy all the different types of animals we might see tonight that mate for life, that uh, we uh, are to not imitate, but that reflect something about how God made us and what he's told us in terms of marriage. So to review, uh, to, to do that, I want to review what we're talking about in terms of Christian spirituality. Remember the command is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, a passive imperative, be filled by the Spirit. So what does that look like? First of all, God gives you a command. God, God issues you a command, and since he's God, we need to what? We need to obey his command. So the command here that drives us towards spirituality is be filled by the Spirit. The second step would be obeying the command with an attitude, the right attitude that would really be real obedience. Humility, humble myself before God, you have your way, and trusting him. So trusting him and humbling myself before God that you would do your work. Um, which involves a couple of things. First of all, if you have sin, you've got to get rid of sin. If I regard iniquity in my heart, he will not hear me. Okay, if we walk in the light as God himself is in the light, then the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. We have fellowship with one another in First uh, John chapter 1. So this is what I mean by all, all obstacles. We also read about this in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, where we remove the sin that easily entangles us. So you've got to deal with personal sin. I think it's very straightforward be, to be filled by the Spirit. And there are a couple of verses I would point you to to, um, to emphasize this. First is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Where Paul, in a list of things not to do, says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. He's got a lot of sins that he lists, and then he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> verse 25, laying aside all falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Verse 28, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Uh, 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your, your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. And then be imitators of God. As, so he's, got a, he's on a laundry list. Of, uh, of commands. And I think that verse uh, 30 is a summary of relationship, and verse 31 is a summary of mental attitude sins that boil over into corporate sins, bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and these things. But what I wanted to point out was 430 says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And I think the context is clear. It's personal sin, and this is something that is relational with God the Holy Spirit. The other passage is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 19 where we're told to quench not the Holy Spirit. 
So that's a functional description of what he wants to do with you. <coughs> don't grieve him in 430. Don't quench him in uh, 1 Thessalonians 519. And, um, and that's especially with reference to the prophetic word of God in that passage where you, you want to let the word of God actually have its way. So this is what I mean by removing all obstacles. We also have to say if we're going to be filled by the Spirit, then we're going to be letting the word of Christ richly dwell within us. And that's a focus on the word of God. And when you focus your attention on the word of God, it clears all the chaff and distraction of my current circumstances, my troubles, whatever because those things have emotional things that attach to them and make it hard for us. Um, when we clear that, the decks a little bit with looking back at the Word, we say, okay, this is my situation, and it is what it is, and I'll just set that in a box for a second. Not suppressing my problems, but just put it, put it over here, and then look at the Word, and it says love one another. And I, but they did, and that's in the box, and that's all true, but that doesn't change the fact that it's a really small box compared to God and His big, beautiful commands for us. So when we look at it that way, um, we can focus on these commands that God gives us, and it, it steers us, and it reminds us that we're talking about service to God, not satisfaction of my own need for, uh, to be right, right, or, or for people to like me, or, or all the things that distract me from obedience to God. This is Christian spirituality, where he gives me that perspective through his word. And then I choose to obey those commands. There's a volitional component here. You have to recognize when you're issued an instruction from someone, you are immediately at a decision point. And part of what I want to do in my life is I want that decision point to get quicker and quicker and quicker and more automatic that God said it. So, yeah, I'm doing it. Yeah, of course. Right? And they all know about the easy commands, the ones that, that are easy for you because you're not struggling with this or that thing that this command addresses. Like, don't, don't gossip. There's a, there's a straightforward statement of Scripture from the Proverbs, and it's also treating one another as you'd like to be treated and all that, so don't gossip, right? So if you don't struggle with gossip, that's an easy command. Like, I love that one. I don't ever talk about anyone, right? But don't be embittered against your wife in Colossians 3.18. Well, I mean, I don't want to, come on. I mean, have you, talk, have you seen how she talks to me? Right? And so that's a hard command for you to obey because in, that, in your situation, your life, and the way things are going, just... Nobody here needs to uh, uh, think that I'm talking to you. There's one wife in the room. <laughs> so not thinking of that, but I'm just, it's one example that comes to mind that for many people would be a hard one to obey. But it's a straightforward command. And so we obey these commands by choosing to do so, but we also have to depend on the Holy Spirit for the capability. And I think that's what Paul is getting at in Galatians 5.16 where he says, Walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, 5.16, is walk in dependence on the power supplied by the Holy Spirit. So I can't do it. I was talking to a lady the other night when I was down in my sojourn, a little point south. I had an opportunity for, for a little bit of ministry with someone that was really struggling with an addiction. And she said, I can't. I can't stop this. Don't ask me why I happened to be in a situation uh, on, on short notice where I was with a stranger who we were praying about her addiction. But I was. And she said, I can't stop. <clears throat> and... Um, we, uh, and, so, and so everybody was like, yes, you can, you can stop. And I was like, you're right, you can't. I agree with you, you everyone, you can in Christ, but on your own, I wouldn't expect you to be able to stop. I, I don't want you to win. You're a Christian. I don't want you to win on your own. This isn't willpower time. This is God's spirit power time. And so we're depending on the spirit of God for the ability to do what he told us to do. And that's got to be the way this works because, again, watch this. And this is for your own study. But Galatians chapter 5, 22, 23 is the what? 
You know what it is, the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 to 23. Sounds like we're a vine and, or the branch connected to the vine and the fruit grows, right? The Spirit of Christ is letting this fruit grow in us. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. But 2 Peter 1, he commands you to love. He commands you to supply uh, the patience and the things that are these kind of virtues that you have listed in the fruit of the Spirit. So am I responsible to do it or is the Holy Spirit responsible to grow it in me? And the answer is yes. Yes, the, the way Paul thinks about it, you make the choice, but you always do it dependently. And that's abiding in Christ in John chapter 15. The third step, I would say, or the third piece of this paradigm is that the Spirit is going to produce these results in us as the fruit of the Spirit. Yeah, I chose to, but I'll never take credit. You know what I mean? Yes, I, I obeyed him, but it was his power anyway, so it was the grace of God working through me. And it is these grace works of obedience where we find ourselves trusting in Christ and, in, and depending on the Holy Spirit as we abide in Jesus the vine that we receive as a recompense. We receive these things back in Colossians 3.24 as the reward of the inheritance. So there's a review. And then the command, remember in Ephesians 5, do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled by the Spirit. Here's your quiz. That ver- what verse is that that says that? It's open book. Ephesians 5.18. Yes, you're like, it says it up on the screen. What the screen doesn't tell you is what does that command to be filled by the Spirit govern grammatically? What else does, does that verb, be filled by the Spirit, address that follows on? How far does this command be filled by the Spirit? How far is that command extending f- forward in, in the following verses? Well, I'm sorry, what was that, Mike? Although almost encyclopedic, the brain on this submarine commander, uh, all the way to six nine. Now listen to me. What you say to one another, what you say to God, what you say to to the Father in, in Thanksgiving, what you how you treat one another submissively, and then all the household codes are submission. They're a form of submission. So the results of the filling of the Spirit extend to all the relationships of life, which are the most difficult because they're the most intimate. Now, I believe that the reason Paul goes from intimacy with the Spirit of God to my intimate household relationships, husband, wife, parents, children, slaves, masters, I believe the reason we go from one to the next is because intimacy is the most difficult part of life when you have a fallen, broken human. Intimacy with me or you is intimacy with you in your good moments and your bad moments, and the bad moments get really bad. The old sin nature is operational, and it is not dead in the sense that it doesn't function. It's dead in the sense that you don't have to submit to it. But Romans 6 reminds us that when you submit yourself to your sin nature or to the flesh for wickedness, you're serving the flesh. And that's the Christian horror of a believer walking in carnality. And so this is the alternative, be filled by the Spirit. And remember this this idea of verses 19 through 21, the results of the filling of the Spirit, what I say to you, speaking to one another in Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. So the word of Christ is in me, and therefore it's coming out of me in how I'm communicating with you. I don't think I'm quoting Scripture here. I don't think it means quote Scripture to someone. I think it means live Scripture in my communication so that it could be an original way of saying something that's scriptural. So that spiritual thought, that's connected from spiritual words to spiritual persons in 1 Corinthians 2 is now coming out in how I communicate with you. The result that you sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. There's an inner soundtrack, remember, going on of 
of my gratitude, but also just my worship and praise of my Savior. And I believe to the Lord is, is uh, generally in Paul, he's talking to the, about the second person the, of the Trinity. The result that you give thanks. The filling of the Spirit will, uh, by God's design, extend to a constant gratitude, a ta- constant gratefulness that I'll express in gratitude to the Father, okay, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, all the time for everything. And then the result is as a mutual submission of a sort, that you will submit one to another. Now, I did not say submit to one another. I said submit one to another, and that's an interesting translation. I got the idea of this translation from a theologian named Wayne Grudem, who did an article in a book called, I think it was called Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. It's a really great book. It's by a good outfit called the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And these are pastors and theologians who have gotten together and said, you know what, men and women are different. We have a different design. They're complementary, not interchangeable. So that complementarian view is probably the mainstream of conservative evangelicalism today. But it's to say that men and women are different, with different functions, different roles. And this is the passage that's going to highlight those differences and, it, and w- so here's your spoiler. One to another means, as would be appropriate to the position you have. The head is still the head and the body is still the body, in other words, as we get into husband and wife. And so how does someone in higher authority submit to someone in lower authority? Not by abdicating my authority and then, su- then obeying the lower authority. That's not what that means. The way the higher authority submits to the lower is like Jesus did. He doesn't stop being the Lord when he puts on the towel and washes their feet. He meets the need without regard to his own rights of of place and glory. Jesus didn't stop being the Lord, and we don't stop worshiping him as one different from us. He's the Savior. He's not our peer, and yet he puts himself in a lower position. And I hope you can see that's not where whatever Peter said Jesus was then to do. In fact, he makes that case in John 13. When he dons the towel and washes their feet, he says, I'm your Lord. If the Lord, the the, the slave isn't greater than his master. If I did these things, you do these things also. You see that he's giving an example by putting himself lower than them, but he doesn't find himself obeying their directives. In fact, Peter says, Lord, don't wash my feet. And Jesus doesn't slap him. Okay, but it's very interesting the the kind of verbal slap he gets. Hey, if, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. That's not someone that's obeying Peter. So I just want you to see the difference between authority and submission. The, the, the submission he's going for in this will be putting your needs below the needs of someone else when you find yourself in a higher position of authority. And let's address that. The household relationships. All the household relationships will now be developed. Uh, and I want to talk about that just a minute. In 522 through 69, that submit to one another is in five from 521 is now exhibited all through the holy spirit makes me able because of the word of god that he's teaching me and applying through me in my life the holy spirit makes me able to let go of my concern about my glory about my rights about i should be treated a certain way he lets me stop worrying about me and start doing for others what he wants me to do for them which is self-sacrificially loving them and so all the household relationships are going to be governed by this concept of hupotasso, of submission. The Christian man or woman is to submit. It's a humility that depends upon the humiliation of Jesus Christ, the humility of our Savior, who didn't consider equality with God a thing to be seized and grasped. 
So that's what we're going for is this concept of submission despite disparities, inequalities, and authority. Humility and authority is in view in submission. Usually when we hear that word submit, we mean somebody's in a higher position of authority to someone in a lower position, and the person higher tells the lower what to do, and the person lower submits and does it. And I'd say that's what's going on every time I get a command from Scripture. God's God, I'm not. He tells me what he wants. I, the creature, then do what he says, right? That's authority, and we figure that out. Now, isn't that the hardest one in the world, though? It's a lot easier to obey somebody at work that's the boss than God sometimes. Have you ever thought of that? The obviously highest ranking authority in the universe, we disobey him all the time through personal sin. But far be it from us if somebody that's cutting our paycheck tells us what they want and we don't get it done. Because they're the boss. Now, not in federal work, because it's hard to fire federal employees. But that, uh, <laughs> that's true. That evaluation report's coming, though, you know. Like, so... Um, the, uh, the, the problem of authority is, um, the reason I'm, I'm harping on this a little bit tonight is that verse 521 will be taken as the basis for removing headship from a husband and giving shared headship between husband and wife. So you have two heads and no body. Nobody has two heads and no body. <laughs> um, and that's the problem, but that's not what the passage supports. You actually have to read what he says in context to see what he means by submit to one another. So humility and authority is in view. And, um, and let me just say, uh, regardless of your personal situation, and, and well, you know, you, you might find the, the person that you're called to submit to, the parent or the husband or the boss in this context, that they're in a higher position of authority, so you do what you do for them as unto the Lord which is the whole point, it's all about serving the Lord, so you, you, you be a good subordinate. The idea of, um, of, of that position that you find yourself in uh, really has nothing to do with the quality of the person in the higher position of authority in that, in that structure. That doesn't mean that they're a good person. In fact, this passage makes me very nervous very convicted as a husband and as a father. Because the, the onus is on the subordinate, regardless of my performance, to serve the Lord by obedience. Following and obeying are their jobs. And I should try to be making that easy for them in the sense that we're making wise decisions. These choices lead to blessing and flourishing instead of which is so often the case, men will not do their job, they will abdicate their responsibility and be passive, or we will uh, be selfish and everyone will suffer that way. By the way, the temperance movement in America was born not from the Bible and uh, the Bible's view of alcohol, but by men and culture not being disciplined men. And uh, the battle of the sexes has been raging since the Garden of Eden, but um, it had a very interesting turn here where there was freedom and it was freedom to fail, and that's what happened with uh, the civilizing effect of womanhood in the early 20th century. Uh, it took a, an interesting turn in terms of temperance. So I want to say in this passage, everyone has to have humility, especially the boss, especially the master, parent, husband. The person in the higher position of authority has to have humility to understand how he or she submits in that circumstance. And not everybody has the same authority in this passage. 
it's impossible to conclude that from what Paul says about headship and bodyship. Now, we're going to talk about the head in a minute, head and the body and all that. I want to talk about that in terms of a, an actual physical body. Wouldn't it be nice if you could remove your head from your body when you have the stomach flu? How about that for an illustration? You know, you walk it over, set it down, go over there, and the body just suffers stomach flu, and your head doesn't have to worry about it. Man, you check in. Hey, how you doing? I'm still, no, I'm not coming back. And then after it's all over, wait a couple more weeks, and okay, let's get back together. Okay, everything's working fine. It doesn't work that way, does it? When the body has stomach flu, the head suffers. What about when you have a really killer headache? Wouldn't it be nice for your body if your head could just sit over here in silence? It doesn't, though. Have you ever had a headache bad enough where you throw up? Everybody. Well, most. Well, you haven't? I'm real good. Right, yeah, right on. Me, yeah. Me too. Um, it's a, that's a bad, that is a bad headache. Sometimes migraines will do that. I've only had two migraines that I know from people's description was that. No, doctor didn't tell me, but, but both times I threw up uh, from that experience. Um, if you get hit in the head hard enough, your, your body gets jarred enough where it messes up your internals. You, you end up a lot of times with a concussion throwing up. So you can't take the thing apart where these effects aren't having their, uh, these causes aren't having their effects on the, the whole person. And so I want to, to use that as a way to think about um, headship and body. They're not the same, but they're connected. And uh, I think the problem that happens, especially with husband and wives, is when we try to segregate. We try to separate off and say, I'm over here being the head. Well, that's ridiculous because the body uh, is the only way the head lives and the, the, the head is the only way the body knows what, where it's going and, and it's, it's, it's all connected. But not everyone in these structures has the same authority. Another thing that will be said about this is it's cultural. Paul's just dealing in the culture in which he lived. And um, that's okay to acknowledge that. That's part of history. But a lot of times what I see theologians or historians do is they take some details from culture or some history that are not given by inspiration of God like the Scriptures, and then they use that as the authoritative thing, authoritative thing to either refute or misdirect our understanding of Scripture so that it's no longer applicable. And we, it's, I call it cultural override, and it's a common thing people do when they when they have a lot of mastery of historical details that have uh, been uh, presented through the years by historians. And what I'd say about that is um, nothing in Ephesians about husbands and wives, which is where all the, all the ar- argument of Fuhrer, none of it is presented as cultural. It's presented as Garden of Eden stuff. And that you can't do the culture thing in Ephesus. I, I'll just share that the, the feminist evangelical feminist inter, interpretation of Ephesians five and husband wife headship bodyship, and also First Corinthians eleven head and body. The the way they get out of it is they say, well, Ephesus had trouble in Corinth. There was trouble in Ephesus. They're worshiping Artemis. They're all proud of their goddess, and so the women are, pardon the expression, they're uppity. They're they're uh, arrogant women. So there was a problem with the women there, and they had to be kind of brought down. To, uh, to, to sanity. So that's why Paul says, what wives submit to your husbands in a cultural sense. And that's not germane to this discussion because he goes back to the Garden of Eden uh, in both of those contexts. So God's design. But, but that introduces another problem. You'd have to actually believe that there was a real Adam and a real Eve to understand what Paul's saying about husbands and wives in, in uh, Ephesians or 1 Corinthians. You have to actually believe in creation the way the Bible describes and so uh, people that don't do that and they say, well, you know, we understand truth 
but it's myth and so it's not factually accurate, are really going to struggle with the way the New Testament writers in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit assume a literal Adam and Eve. The next thing that's really striking to me as I look at this, just by way of observation, is it's wives, husbands, children, parents or fathers, slaves, masters. He's very consistent by putting the person in the position of lower authority, the subordinate, first, and the person who's the head of the situation second. This, uh, this message is filmed before a live studio audience. So let's talk about it. Why? Why does he put the lower authority first in this passage? They have a higher calling of obedience. Yeah, it's, that's right. There's a higher problem. They've got a problem that the, the, the body has a problem the head doesn't have. The, the, the master has a problem, the, the slave has a problem the master doesn't have. That's a really hard call. It's hard to be told that somebody with a sinful nature has some sort of headship. That means that someone's going to suffer. <coughs> Everyone's going to suffer <coughs> because of our fallenness. But notice that the verb in 521 is submit. All the household code stuff after is governed by submit, by this participle that is the expression of the filling of the Spirit. And so you're right, Matt. I think there's a differential that makes it a hard, a hard road for the slave, a hard road for the, um, for the child, a hard road for the wife. And fully understandable why we would say, no, I'm not doing that which is the common thing that, that happens. We resist this um, institution of authority and delegation of responsibility because um, we're inside we're rebels and then we're dealing with people over us that are rebels. And we don't want to submit to them. What's that? Do I want water? I'll drink water with a little, co- little flex of coffee in it. Thank you. Yeah, it's, bit, it's bad up here tonight. Um, but um, why, uh, why, why he does this, I think women and children and slaves find themselves in a position to glorify God in a greater way by submitting to the Holy Spirit and being filled by him so that he, they're able to glorify God in this grand fashion. Next week, uh, hopefully, we'll get to, uh, or actually Sunday, first hour, we'll get to the slave section in Colossians 3. The slave discussion is where inheritance and rewards are connected by explicit verbiage by Paul. And so, um, you, know, you know that place in 1 Peter, uh, I think 1 Peter 2, when he says, what good is it if you as slaves bear up under suffering from good masters? When you have a good master tell you and you do it, what's the reward there? You had, you're treated well and then you do your job. That's not really a big differential, but if you're treated harshly and you humble yourself before God and you bear up under that suffering, that's a big glory for God. That's a big demonstration of God's grace. And so, you know, think about the way stories work. Think about the Joseph story, you know, the last 10 chapters of Genesis, give or take. Um, you have, uh, he's, he's hated by his brothers, he's thrown into slavery, um, 
that story wouldn't be nearly as good if he just kind of had to put up with his brothers ridiculing a little bit and then they finally had to admit, you know, he is a better leader than all of us. So, you know, God obviously has blessed him, whatever. And then he grew up and then he, you know, he, he made good decisions. That wouldn't be nearly as good a story as his brothers hated him so much that they wanted to kill him and then they softened it and sold him into slavery and then he rose through the ranks of slavery to eventually be the prime minister of the country. Way better story. But you've got to have these turns, these conflicts that take the story into a, a, a place where God gets to glorify himself with this major, I want to call it like oppression differential. When God backs Israel up, uh, Exodus 14, he, he, he leads them with the cloudy pillar right where he wants them. And they find their back is to the sea. And then there's a land feature here that stops us. Another land feature here. And so we're stuck and Pharaoh's chariots are coming to kill everyone. Uh, just out of murderous revenge. And there's, no, there's nowhere for us to go, God, what are you doing? You, you, you let us out here. What's the, what's the deal? Well, hey, I can't. I need the differential to grow a little bit. I've got to get my glory out of this situation. So I'm making it really obvious that you're really in a weakened, hopeless, oppressed position. And then God is our Savior. God delivers them at the Red Sea crossing. And it's, wow, it's amazing. If you read Exodus 14 about how that's all set up, how God does that, you'll see what I'm talking about. It's a theme that keeps coming up. And I think that's what you're seeing in um, the people that find themselves in a subordinate position. I also want to say it's a great argument against getting married. It really is. That, that this is how it is. When people come to understand what marriage is, involves, they need to count the cost before they do something like this to themselves for life. Matthew 19, the disciples, after hearing Jesus discuss marriage, say, well, Lord, if it's like this, it would be better not to marry. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, no, no, it's great. He says, most people can't handle that. Some people have been called to handle that, but most people can't handle it. Most people aren't called to, to singledom. They're called to marriagedom. And uh, guess what? There's suffering on both sides of that. Paul says it'd be better to remain as I am in 1 Corinthians 7. I'm not just preaching at you young people, okay? But it'd be better for you to remain as I am because I'm trying to save you from suffering. That's what he says about marriage in 1 Corinthians 7. And you're supposed to be able to come back to Paul and say, okay, I understand. I'll serve God better by myself, except that in God's institution of marriage, Uncle Paul, if we both are serving the Lord in this institution that he's designed for us, then we're better able to do his mission together. And that's what our marriage would really be about. And Paul would say, that's what you need to do. That's the right way to think about Christian marriage. Don't marry if it takes you away from the service of the Lord. That would be um, a great cause for suffering. Okay, so enough theoretical discussion and musing. Let's look at the details. Guess who mates for life? Bald eagles. I didn't pick this as a headship picture because the eagle was higher. I just, this is the next one that came up, and I think that they're beautiful. Obviously, it's a great blessing that we have this as our national emblem. Wives, to your own husbands, be submissive just as to the Lord, because husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is also the head of the church. He's the Savior of the body, but as the church is subject to Christ, in the same way also the wives to their own husbands and everything. That's all you get, verses 22, 23, 24. That's all verses 22 through 24, despite what the slide says. Um, it's an awful, awful uh, thing that you've been called to do because of the brokenness of husbands. 
But it's wonderful because of the filling of the Holy Spirit and the capability he will give you to do what he's calling you to do. But you do it as unto the Lord, just as to the Lord. Um, The slide numbers are messed up, but this is verse 22 again. Wives, to your own idiot, be submissive. Oh, I'm sorry, to your own husband. I keep reading the the Greek. Look at this right right here. You're going to like this one. I-D-I-O-I-S. That's right. That's pronounced idios. Adios, idios. Uh, this is the genitive plural, the, the, and this is husbands or men, androsin, uh, emphasis on the job of a man or husband, to the own, to one's own, idios. This is where the word idiosyncrasies come from. You have your own little weird things about you, idiosyncrasies. doesn't mean you're an idiot. It's coming from the Greek to have one's own. Now, the reason I want to highlight this word is not because it sounds like idiot, which is fun, but because it's emphasizing possessiveness or possession. To have the big dumb ox is a great thing. You just have to recognize the cost of the ox. The proverb says, Without the, where there is no ox, the feeding trough is clean. The crib is where you put his food. I used to think it was where he stood and did his business, but it's not. It's where he eats. You don't have to buy any gasoline if you don't have a car. You don't have to put diesel if you don't have a tractor, but much increase comes through the strength of the ox. So we, we have to feed the thing, but look what we get from it. You get the, all the production, the productivity of your tractor, which was an ox was. That's, I want you to understand, there, there is in this verse a beautiful thing about marriage, and it is possessiveness. Not an inordinate or an illicit, sinful possessiveness of jealousy, but just one's own to your own husband. And I think the emphasis here um, is well put, and um, it's a little hint at the blessing that wives have when they have a husband. It is a great blessing to have someone who can do what husbands are supposed to do. Let's talk about what husbands are supposed to do in verse 23, despite what the slide says. This is verse 23. Because the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is also the head of the church. That's the place that tells me you can't do this equal authorities, mutual headship thing. It doesn't work. There's head and body. They're connected, but they have different roles, different functions. And head involves decision-making, headship responsibility. Look what else the head does. What does that third line say? Jesus, as the head of the church, is also the what? The savior of the somatos, the body. He's the savior of the body. The head saves the body. How did you jump out of that oncoming train? How did you jump out of way just in time? Your head, where your brain is located, told your nerves to send signals some mag- with the magic of God's design of, uh, of, of <laughs> nerve communications. Your body jumped because your brain said to jump. Your head said get out of the way and you got out of the way. Your head did some calculations and you said, I'm not going to buy this timeshare <laughs> or whatever. And you saved your body all kinds of suffering because you thought it through. So when you, when you want to think about the, the way the head saves the body, okay, this is a place where I want to preach verse 23. You don't usually think about the wife section as something to preach to men, but look at what God expects of the man here to be the savior of the body. This is the shepherd and sheep metaphor. This is somebody that's 
not only there watching the sheep, but he's watching behind the sheep, looking for security for that perimeter. And he's a good shot with a sling because he's got a job of protecting those sheep. So he's the savior of the body. I lost a verse. Did I not? I lost the command because I miscounted. Verse 24 in my Bible says, But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives to their husbands in everything. So that comparison uh, takes you right into uh, conflict with the world's popular morality today. This is because, again, I think that we see misuse of authority. So we say the problem is the authority. No, the problem isn't the delegated authority from God. That's God-given. The problem is the administrator who's broken and sinful. But see, when you recognize authority as its own thing, that's a delegation from God. Now you know to serve God and how you submit to it. And that's the secret. The theological secret of this passage is that you do this as unto the Lord. As the church is subject to Christ, so also wives to their husbands in everything. Now, that everything, uh, what does that mean? What does everything mean? What is it? Wives submit to your husbands in everything? Well, um, you'd be amazed at how many people want to provide me exceptions that destroy the rule. Well, I've got an example of where I couldn't submit to my husband, so uh, obviously we don't have to obey Ephesians 5.24. And my answer to that is, um, Paul is making a general statement about how the head and body are supposed to function. And again, what you're trying to do is separate the two apart as though there's two different entities rather than one organism and a, a, a coalescence of working together. And uh, when you separate the, the, body, the head from the body, that's Madame la guillotine. That's the French Revolution. That's, the, that's, the, that's decapitation. And it's stupid <laughs> to do that in marriage, to separate these two apart. They're, they're connected, but they have different functions. And so my answer to the, uh, to the husband uh, as someone I can't submit to because I found one example is to say, well, you need to generally probably repent, and um, we probably haven't had enough conversation. You probably haven't talked together enough to where unified, and this isn't a problem. Um, Colossians 3.18 is your parallel passage, and it says, Wives, be submissive to your own husbands just as is fitting in the Lord. That's all that, that Paul tells the Colossians. It's a shorter letter. He doesn't elaborate very much. Wives, same verb, hupotasso, right here. H-U-P-O-T-A-S-S, long O is the dictionary form. Be submissive is the uh, translation here. To your husbands, to your idios, your own. Jesus came to his idios. He came to his own. They didn't own him. They didn't uh, honor him. This is your own people. This is uh, something that, I love this word about marriage. Um, when we give, when we do the vows in a wedding, you've probably seen a wedding before. There's a, an assumption of this is my husband, my wife. There's a possession, um, not an objectification of an object, but a possession of something that you take on something new that you've never had before, your own wife, your own husband. And, um, uh, but he uses that in this little one verse on this. He still brings that out about possessiveness and uh, connectedness. Again, not, I don't mean, I don't mean uh, psychopathic possessiveness. I'm talking about 
a recognition that uh, uh, when you found a good wife, you found a good thing. And uh, same with a, a good husband. Wives, be submissive to your own husbands just as is fitting in the Lord. That's what he means by in everything. If your husband says, don't obey the Lord, well, you obey the Lord. You always obey the higher authority when the lower authority says no. When the, when the, the lower government says, you know, bow down to the image, and you say no, and they say, we're going to throw you in the fiery furnace, you say, we don't have to obey you. We're going to obey God. And then God overrules the fiery furnace in the Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego story. So, um, so this is not against God. This is as unto the Lord. Guess who else mates for life? Wolves, it turns out, uh, do this. Wolves are very different than dogs. Dogs are dogs. <laughs> but wolves, and apparently the, wolf com- the dog comes from the wolf. Chihuahuas on up to Great Danes and bigger all came from wolves, uh, we think, and they can interbreed with them. But wolves have their own special way that is programmed, and something has happened with the breeding that's deprogrammed it with the dogs, but the wolves mate for life. I keep bringing up mating for life in marriage because of the tendency we have in our sin nature to think that monogamy is monotony, that one person for life is somehow limitation. That's not a problem for anyone here, but that is a major problem for everyone uh, my generation and younger in the world we live in, that monog- monogamy is, is, is a waste. And especially for men, especially men think that this is, that, that there's no variety, there's no spice, there's no good to that. And men want to be dogs, and it's a tendency uh, that we see in our civilization, or lack thereof. And um, I don't think it's as common for women to think this way. I think there's a lot of reasons why that is in terms of how God made us and how the fall has affected us, but um, we see this with women as well. And um, the answer to that is you trust God on his design of things, and then you find blessings you could never have imagined, and that your, your urges and your lusts couldn't have told you about either, like the blessing of one person um, in marriage with all that marriage involves. Uh, in Ephesians 5, we hear about husbands. Husbands, in verse 25, love your wives just as also Christ loved the church and gave himself as a substitute. My translation, as a substitute because of this prepositional phrase here, who pair plus the genitive of altos, uh, or altos is the dictionary form. That, that is a, a, a prepositional phrase that will indicate substitution, one party for the other party, and it really drives to the whole doctrine of the atonement. How did Jesus deal with our sins? He dealt with them as our substitute in our place, satisfying the righteous wrath of God's justice on sin. So he was the anvil that the hammer of God's wrath fell upon at the cross. That's the substitutionary atonement. Jesus isn't paying Satan off. He's not just showing that he's victorious over Satan. He's not just showing us an example of how to submit to God. He is actually paying the penalty of God's wrath on sin. And I believe that is indicated all the times you see where your Bible says, for us, I would translate as a substitute. He gave himself as a substitute for us, and this is a reference to his saving work of the cross. So that he might sanctify her by cleansing through the washing of water with the word. Now this phrase, so that, hina plus the uh, subjunctive, this is a purpose clause that expresses why he gave himself. 
the verb is he gave himself in verse 25. And this is why he did it. So that he would sanctify her. And here's how he did it. By cleansing, katharizo. By cleansing. And then you have a dative that is used as an instrumental with the washing or by means of washing of water. Now you look at this phrase. In English, we hear washing of water and we think there it is, baptism. And by the way, we ought to pour water because that's how you wash with water. You pour water. And so there's that whole theme of theory of, of pouring and baptism. But look what happens here. The, the, this, this case here of this word, the washing, is the word that is the instrument by which he cleansed us. And it is modified by this phrase of water. The washing of water is one unit. We think water is the main thing. It's not. It's the cleansing. It's the, it's the washing by cleansing us by the washing. And it's of water. And then it's in remadi, in or by or with the Spirit, or with, with the Word. And so what I'm trying to say is that this phrase, cleansing, I would translate that almost today by in English, since we're so hung up on the theology of water. Um, I would say that this is talking about the way the Word cleanses you. It's as if washed with water. Now think about this. We're talking about people that have to carry water to wash. Or they have to go down to a stream or to a lake or something. This is not a bath-intensive community. <laughs> In fact, they meet for prayer at the river when there's not a synagogue because there's various ritual baptisms, okay, in the Jewish uh, system. In Paul's day, he would go to, like, he met uh, Lydia by the river because there's no synagogue in Philippi. So he goes to the river looking for the Jews who are there to pray because of their various washings. This is how you wash. You wash with water. And so it's like it, the, 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 the word picture, I believe what he's doing here, is the, what the word has done, the rhema has done, is it has washed you as though by water. And I think that's what he's saying instead of jumping to baptism, which isn't even in the passage. He's not talking about baptism. He's talking about how he sanctified us with the cross when he gave himself for us so that he would sanctify us with, with, with a bath, with a cleansing with his word. Um, and so... There's a lot of prepositional phrases. There's one here. Uh, there's, a, there's one that could be taken like one in this dative construction. And there's like three constructions with nouns in this. Through, wa- through washing of water with the word, there's three things. And the way you put those together uh, needs to be done in context and so forth. And I'm contending that, that you do this, um, that the point is with the word. But um, I could talk about that some more if you want. But in verse 27... So that he might present. So he, wa- he, he, he gave himself to clean us so that he might present us. So this is a flow of thought of what he did to save us. He might present the church to himself glorious, not having any spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she would be holy and blameless. Now, I, I've talked about this before, but I want to reiterate the, um, the one's own, that you do this for your own uh, husband, your own wife. Jesus is selflessly, he, he, he died. He took the bullet for us, as it were, at the cross, right? He, he suffered for us, and that is a selfless act because he is, uh, the only way we can have eternal life is this death he had to die for our sins, this spiritual suffering, the wrath of God for our sins. But notice that the ultimate prize is us. Um, one of the prizes, I should say, is us. He wanted us for himself. So he gave himself for us so that he could cleanse us with the word and so that he could present us to himself 
without any sin, without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but so that she would be holy and blameless. Now, the reason Paul is talking about this awesome theology of Jesus suffering for us, remember, is because he's teaching husbands that in the power of the Holy Spirit, you're to take on the character and nature of Christ and self-sacrifice for the sanctification of your wife. It's a beautiful thought, but it is very much the self-sacrifice for the gain of one's wife, that you, you get her for yourself. And so, um, a lot of times, men will do nice things. Husbands will do nice things for their wives because they want their wives to appreciate it, to like it, and to love them for it. I'll do something nice, and then she will give me some of that highly desired affection. There's an entire holiday that's been created to uh, service this called Valentine's Day. Um, It's a fun thing. You know, Christmas, uh, December 26th or so, Walmart turns pink. You know, it's Valentine's. It's Valentine's, as we used to say. Um, well, there, that seems a little selfish. Man's doing something because he just wants her to, to, to give him some loving, or he wants her to have affection, or just, you know, he's, he's trying to accomplish something. And so we think that's, that's a little manipulative. It's a little self-serving, a little self-seeking. It is. And man, we shouldn't do this. We should do what they need and seek their sanctification and protect them and love them and all the things that we see described here. But let's make no mistake, our ultimate goal is we want them with us. We want them for us and we'll do what it takes. That's a little different than I'm going to try to get, get my goodies from my wife, right? If I'm nice to her, she'll make me some cookies or something. That's not what what Jesus did, but he did what he did because he did want a relationship with you. And so what I'm saying is there is a pretty clear line between manipulation and self-gratification and uh, a romantic really going after someone for the relationship itself. There's a difference. But, um, but that selfless love that Jesus gave, he does have a prize for himself he's after, which is us. And um, <clears throat> this is this is something to ponder. In verse 28, thus husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes just as also the Lord the church, because we are members of his body from his flesh and from his bones. Remember that disconnection of head from body? It's an absurdity. That's what we're talking about. There's got to be this organic unity. And so the head decides to go uh, eat healthy for the body's sake. And the head decides to exercise so that the body is healthy, but the head benefits. You see, it's all related. And so Jesus is considering this um, as taking care of his body, and that's the way Paul is arguing it. And so for this reason, a man, and, and this is why verse 31 is why you can't do this as cultural. Well, there was just a problem with feminism or something in, in Ephesus. No, there's a problem with feminism since Genesis 3.16. There's been a problem between us and God, and therefore everything God designed um, all along. And Romans 1 talks about this problem of how pagan man descends from service to God to service of the creature and idolatry, and it ends in all the sexual sins. Well, here, uh, we go back to Genesis and creation order. This is Genesis 2.24. A man, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So what he's doing in verse 31 is he's emphasizing the the connection between a husband and wife that is not just sex, it's union of souls, it's 
head and body as, as like an organic whole. That's the one flesh idea. Sign of that is sex, but it's not just about sex. But see here, um, as close as you might remain with your parents, he's not saying you hate your parents in Genesis 2.24. Most people that read what Moses wrote in Genesis 2.24 about leaving your family, they, when they married a woman, they brought her to their father's tent. They added on to the tent. It's not saying that we're not connected to the family anymore. It's saying that as connected as we might be, as I might be working in my dad's fields and tending his flocks, you know, in my, but I, I'm married now. As close as I might be to my family, um, that, that might as well be strangers compared to the oneness of husband and wife. And there's a great evil that happens when this gets out of whack and uh, one, of the, one of the spouses brings parents in to something that should be, you know, organic. Those aren't one flesh with us. They came from us. Yeah, the kids did come from us, but they're not one flesh with us. That's not God's design. Or when the, or, or worse, when the parents, when the parents, he's the boss, right? Dad's got the business and I'm working for him. He, they horn their way in and start messing with something that's between husband and wife. See, that's, there's a sacredness in, in God's design for Christian marriage and for marriage in general that we avoid that. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking about Christ and about the church. Nevertheless, also, you, each one, is to love his wife as himself, as wife that she fear her husband. And so the, the, the husband section in Colossians 3, that's the parallel passage, if you're filled with the Spirit, and that therefore the Word of God is richly dwelling within you, then husbands love your wives and do not be embittered against them. So control of your feelings. Have you ever been embittered? Of course you have. Have you ever thought as a Christian, I have a choice here about being bitter or about being angry with it giving in to bitterness? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever had that experience? I'm praying that you will, that you will love your wives and not be embittered against them. By the way, this is not um, a, a marital spat between a husband and wife, the picture of the wolves, okay? This is, a, this is, how, this is how wolves and dogs operate. Uh, they play, but they also control, like somebody is exercising dominance over someone else. Now, they're both going for it. There's a Genesis 3.16 going, thing going on here. But the male is ultimately going to say, hush. And that's what they do. They, they nip at each other and the male says, hush. And, um, and so uh, I was looking for a picture I could use that was free to use for, uh, for wolves uh, that were paired up. And then it was this one. I was like, oh, that's perfect for a marital discussion. <laughs> French angelfish mate for life. Isn't that cool? French angelfish. If, um, if it would be possible for Adam for you to hang on for just a minute after the prayer, I'd like to do another special cut of a video about what I'm going to talk about next. But I want to give everybody who needs to get home to kids and take care of kids a chance to do that. If you just, just a few minutes. Okay. Well, we're at a stopping place in our discussion. And uh, thank you for your attention tonight. Um, I don't think I've said anything that anyone here didn't already know, but I think... I am personally refreshed when I think about these things again and the connection I have in terms of my salvation from Jesus, the connection I have in how I conduct myself as a husband. Um, in marriage, I think uh, this becomes more and more important to me the more I think about it, the more I reflect on it in Scripture. So I pray that that will be true for you as well, especially you 
who are, I'm going to try to talk you all out of any future considerations, always. <laughs> You're like, we're not even anywhere near all that. But uh, I'm every, every young person that comes to me, I'm going to try to talk them out of getting married. You know why? Because when you can say, Everything you're saying, I'm going to own for the rest of my life, and I'm going to get married, we know, we know that's a good choice. When you can say, well, you know, we're going to roll the dice and see how this works, that's when I say uh, that's the wrong, that's, that's gambling with your life. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word and the obligations you placed on us to submit to you first, and then one to another, how even those in authority have to submit themselves and become servants of all. And I ask that you'd encourage us and glorify yourself through us as we embrace this. Father, it's so easy to slip out of this mindset and to serve ourselves. And I pray that when, when uh, this starts to happen, you'll make us all very sensitive to that. This is the work of your spirit in us through your word. We know it is. And uh, we look for that work. And the marriage is here at Preston City Bible Church. And let us be a blessing to those around us. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.